Mark 14, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I've still got a couple of books, uh, just by the way, that uh, some free books if you want to take those. Uh, what Happens When I Die? They are left over from last week. Uh, so if you want one of those, come and grab that off me at the end uh, today. Uh, let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you have made yourself known to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have come into our world and that you have shown us in the person of Jesus who you are and what you're like. And Father, we ask particularly this morning that you would help us to see Jesus uh, more clearly, that you would help us to be amazed and struck by who he is and his person and his character and his kindness and compassion uh, and grace and mercy and authority as well. And Father, we ask that you would stir our hearts, that we might not uh, only see those things, but that we might uh, grasp onto the Lord Jesus Christ more tightly. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen. Uh, well, we're continuing our series today, looking at uh, some of the questions that you've asked about difficult topics uh, in the Bible and the Christian life. You should have a handout as well with some Bible passages that we'll go through on the, uh, on the way through. Uh, and so far in this series, we've thought about uh, what happens after we die, uh, and we thought last week about how you can know that you're saved. And today we're dealing with maybe the most unusual question in this uh, short series, which is, does Jesus feel human emotion? Uh, it's an unusual question in the sense that it's not the kind of question that people ask or that people ask all that often, I don't think. But it's really a great question. Uh, it's a great question because at the heart of the good news is the truth that God the Son took on our humanity, he took on human nature in order to redeem us and to rescue us, and Jesus continues to possess that human nature for all eternity. But what does it mean in practice that Jesus is both the divine Son of God, but also a human being? 
Uh, what does it mean in particular with respect to his emotions? So what, what do, how does that look on the ground? One of the reasons uh, that that might be an even more kind of pressing question or uh, interesting question is that in the history of the church there's been a doctrine called the impassibility of God. Now you may or may not have ever heard of that. Impassibility is not really a word that most people use but uh, roughly translated the impassibility of God uh, kind of means if you like the passionlessness of God. That's a kind of a rough translation of it. But that rough translation of what that means can be quite misleading. Uh, It's led some people to understand that God is impassive or without emotion. But that was never actually what that doctrine was supposed to mean. Rather, the doctrine of the uh, impassibility of God was about the fact that uh, God's uh, emotions don't change him or change his plans or change his promises. So as we sung before, the fact that God never changes doesn't mean that he doesn't feel emotion, but it means that his decision-making is purposeful and unchanging and it's consistent with his unchanging nature rather than subject to the ups and downs of his emotions as we might be kind of subject to the ups and downs of our emotions. The problem is that wrong in view of that doctrine of the impassibility of God can have the unintended consequence of, of leading us to think, well, if, if God doesn't have any emotions, then maybe that's what we're supposed to be like as well. Maybe if God is passionless, we should be passionless. Don't smile, don't enjoy anything. Dangerous. That view implies somehow that human emotions are problematic uh, and troublesome. But the portrayal of Jesus in the Gospels presents emotions uh, as a far more uh, complex uh, and real thing. Jesus' emotions speak to both his humanity and his identification with us and with our experience as human beings... Uh, They speak about his humanity, but they also speak actually about his divinity. They speak about who he is as God. Through the Gospels, we see Jesus expressing a range of emotions, amazement, sternness, compassion, overwhelming grief, anger, distress, sighing, indignation, love, joy, weeping, anguish, zeal, being deeply troubled. It's not possible, uh, you'll be glad to know, to examine all those emotions uh, this morning. Uh, If you want to do that, there is a book that does exactly that. Uh, Jesus' Emotions in the Gospels, uh, one of my lecturers wrote this book, uh, and it goes through all the expressions of Jesus' emotions in the Gospels, uh, and I found that a very helpful book uh, to, to read in preparing for this. But because we can't think about all the emotions of Jesus as they occur in the Gospels, I want to just focus on three. I want to focus on Jesus' overwhelming grief. I want to focus on his deep compassion. And finally, focus on his anger. Uh, and there'll be a time of questions uh, at the end as well. So maybe the greatest example of Jesus' humanity comes in that passage that we read uh, and in the events that lead up to uh, Jesus' crucifixion. 
Uh, Mark describes Jesus in verse 33 as deeply distressed and troubled. And in the next verse, in verse 34, Jesus describes his own feelings using his own words. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It's pretty intense uh, kind of experience of emotion. And the, the words that Jesus is using there are, have their are kind of echoing, if you like, one of the Old Testament Psalms, Psalm 42, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? It's the same kind of terminology that Jesus is using. He's picking up that language from that Old Testament human experience and saying, that's what I'm feeling right now. What Jesus experienced in Gethsemane was in many ways a very human experience. He's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. One scholar has written, almost nowhere else in the Gospels does Jesus appear so impressively human. Nowhere does he seem more nakedly vulnerable to human vicissitude, to ups and downs. His lonely nocturnal vigil in Gethsemane appears to be marked by neither sovereign control of his destiny or serene assurance of divine oversight, but by helplessness and loss of control. That's what it looks like, he's saying. Here Jesus appears to distinguish himself, not by some divinely given immunity to passions, but by the cruel intensity with which he experiences them. The Garden of Gethsemane is where Jesus is at his most human and where he seems most out of control. It's fitting, I think, that the point at which Jesus can most closely identify with us is when he faces death. After all, what could be more human and less divine than that? As God, Jesus couldn't face death. He could only face death having taken on our human human nature. Jesus identifies with us and he identifies with us at the very worst point. It is the great fear to die. It's for that reason, uh, and many others, of course, as well, but that kind of his experience in the Garden of Gethsemane typifies his identification with us. And it's for that reason that he can uh, sympathize with us in our weakness, as the writer of Hebrews says. He understands what life is like. He understands what human frailty is like, what it's like to face sadness, to face death. Whatever you face in life, Jesus doesn't just know about it. He's not like the doctor who gives you a diagnosis of your cancer and understands all the medical realities and all the best treatment options. He's like the person who's suffered from cancer and been through it and can walk along with you knowing what it's like to experience it, to understand the pain and the horror and the sadness. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is at his most human. And yet, the Garden of Gethsemane is more complex than that as well. It's more complex because the reason that Jesus feels the way that he does is not just because he's facing death, but because he's been entrusted with a God-given mission, a divine mission from his heavenly Father, a mission of unparalleled horror. 
He's going to the cross, but the cross is not just a place of human pain and human suffering. The cross is a place of divine judgment and divine wrath. Again, to quote another person, uh, the dreadful sorrow and anxiety then out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It's not just about human sorrow. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father at the prospect of the alienation from God which is entailed in the judgment upon sin which Jesus assumes. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal but found hell rather than heaven opened before him and he staggered. What makes the Garden of Gethsemane so painful is not just that Jesus is a human and he's facing suffering and death. What makes it so painful is that Jesus is facing divine judgment. The divine judgment that we deserved. He faces that instead of us. But the pain and the horror of that is amplified because of his divinity. The Son is in the closest possible relationship with the Father. John tells us that in John chapter 1. He's in the bosom of the Father, is how John puts it. Jesus is in the closest possible relationship with the Father, and yet within a day he would hang on a cross and cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, it's the one who has the greatest treasure who has the most to lose. Jesus had the greatest treasure, a unique relationship between the Father and the Son. And as he stood and wept and prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, that was what he feared. And that was the sorrow and anguish even to the point of death. In his overwhelming grief, even where Jesus is the most human, he is at the same time the most divine. So the first emotion then is Jesus' anguish and distress. The next emotion uh, that we'll think about is his compassion. And again and again in the Gospels, Jesus' compassion lies at the heart of how he's betrayed. Uh, so in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' compassion is the only emotion that's mentioned in the whole middle section of the book. It's helpful, I think, to kind of, as we think about this, to quickly survey some of the ways that Jesus' compassion is spoken about in the Gospels. So you'll find some of those on your sheet. Uh, there in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is looking out over the crowd of people who followed him. Uh, they haven't eaten for days. And he says to his disciples, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they may collapse uh, on the way. Jesus has this enormous compassion over this crowd of 4,000 people. And his response to that compassion is to feed them miraculously. But take a moment to consider not just Jesus' response, but the extent of his compassion. He looks out over 4,000 plus people and he's overwhelmed with compassion. 
most of us have trouble just kind of, you know, kind of feeling compassionate for one or two people. And here's Jesus looking out over a whole crowd and he has compassion on all of them. His compassion is enormous and extensive. Again, in Matthew chapter 9, he looks out over another crowd and is moved with deep compassion. He's moved with compassion not just for their physical needs, but also by their need to know the good news. So Matthew tells us when he saw the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Again, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But look at what Jesus says. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into this harvest field. So Jesus wants them to know the good news about him. He has compassion on them, but his compassion is not just physical for their physical needs, it's for their spiritual needs as well. So Jesus' compassion is extensive, it's spiritual, not just physical, but it's also deeply personal. In Mark chapter 1, verse 41, uh, a leper comes desperately running uh, to Jesus. He comes running to Jesus because he knows that Jesus is the only one who can do something about his condition. His disease has not only maimed him physically, but it's made him an outcast of society. And Mark tells us, despite this, moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will, that is, I will heal you. Be clean. What Jesus did there was unthinkable. Oh, to heal him, yes, of course, unthinkable. (laughs) Incredible. But to stretch out and touch a leper? It would have made anyone else uh, within the Old Testament system unclean themselves. To touch a, a filthy outcast? But Jesus did it, Mark tells us, because he was filled with compassion. He did what nobody else would do. Because he was filled with compassion. And actually, Jesus' touch, Jesus' kind of physical touch, is often associated with his compassion. He sees a blind man and he touches his eyes. He sees the dead son of a widow and he touches the stretcher on which the body was being carried and he says to the young man, Get up! He casts out a demon and he takes the man by the hand and he lifts him up. Jesus' compassion gives us a profound insight into who he is. What's interesting too is that the Greek term which is used of Jesus' compassion, splunknizomai, it's one of my favourite words in the Bible, doesn't sound very compassionate, does it? Splunknizomai, it's it's a word that's only used in the Gospels to refer to Jesus. Uh, And a couple of characters in parables. So it's used to refer predominantly to Jesus and then 
the, the master of the unmerciful servant, the good Samaritan, uh, and uh, the father of the prodigal son. So three God-like characters, actually, in those parables. But in other words, the compassion of Jesus seems to be almost a unique characteristic. Uh, and it seems to be kind of a God-like characteristic too. Things get even more interesting when you realise that that term, that Greek term, was uh, translated in Jewish literature uh, of the first century. Uh, it, it translated the, uh, a Hebrew word uh, that was used too, almost though not exclusively, of God. Uh, and that word, that Hebrew word, which it translates, refers to God's remarkable mercy and compassion. So the Gospel writers are portraying this compassion of Jesus not so much as a human emotion, a human characteristic, but actually as a divine characteristic, characteristic of God. Moreover, Jesus' compassion is always linked to his miracles, to displays of his divinity, his godness. Jesus comes to us as God and looks out at us as harassed and helpless and he's filled with compassion. But he's not helpless in that compassion. His compassion is accompanied by extraordinary power, by extraordinary power to heal and to save. And his compassion comes with unmatched kindness. He comes to us and he reaches out and he touches us and he takes us by the hand and he lifts us up. What Jesus' compassion highlights is not his humanity, but his divinity. What Jesus gives us is a glimpse into who God is. But, and this is crucial, it's important to understand that while this compassion is a characteristic, a hallmark of God, it's not only a characteristic of God. Uh, as I said before, it's also used in those parables of human characters. And the related terms uh, are used in the Old Testament of other human beings. So in other words, compassion is a particular, particularly striking characteristic of God, but it's not a uniquely divine emotion. And that compassion, which characterises God, is still something which ought to characterise us. In fact, the question that we're thinking about, in some ways, is maybe the wrong question. The question is maybe not, does Jesus have human emotions? Rather, the question perhaps is, as humans, do we have emotions like God? The Bible says that as human beings, we're made in the image of God, we're made to reflect God. And one of the ways that we're supposed to do that is in the emotions that we feel in response to the events that we see and the things that we experience. But the problem is, 
that our fall into sin, our rejection of God, means that our emotions are distorted and corrupted and turned upside down. They're confused. They rule over us. They lead us in directions away from God uh, rather than to God. But Jesus, in taking on human flesh, has done what we couldn't do. That is, he's perfectly imaged God. Shown us who God is because he could do that because he is God. In him we see the perfect compassion of God. The perfect compassion that we fail to have. But the compassion that we're supposed to imitate. Uh, in the book, this uh, book that I mentioned, uh, that a friend of mine wrote, uh, he notes that we often seek to imitate Jesus in lots of areas in our life. We often seek to imitate Jesus, particularly with respect to his morality, and rightly so. But there's also a sense in which we ought to imitate Jesus with respect to his emotions. He is the perfect example of what it means to be human, <laughs> to image God. And so we ought to imitate him in every way. That doesn't mean that our compassion will ever be as expansive as God's compassion. That would kill us, that would cripple us. But our compassion is just a little snapshot of God's compassion. It's just a little image of the compassion that Jesus displayed in his life on earth. And importantly too, that reordering and renewal and reshaping of our emotions is not something that we can achieve in and of ourselves. It's very hard, in fact, actually, to change our emotions. Our emotions or our affections are, in some ways, the deepest parts of our hearts, the hardest places to reach. That reordering and renewal of our, of our emotions is not something that we do in our own power, but it's something that we do by linking up with Jesus. He's come, he's, he's reshaped humanity in his image. He's perfectly expressed the emotions of God in human form. And when we link up with him, not only do we find forgiveness for our outer control and our distorted emotions, but we also find in him the power to be transformed into his image and to be reshaped in our emotions and not just our morality. So Jesus uh, shows us his distress and his anguish as God and uh, as, as a man. We've seen his compassion again and we've seen how both of those reflect his humanity and his divinity. Finally, I want to look at Jesus' anger uh, or if you like it, the complexity of, uh, of his emotions. I think that's important for us to do because if we don't make this last step, we can get a very distorted picture of who Jesus is and what he's like. Uh, let me just give one example of, uh, of this uh, emotion and, and this complexity. I mentioned before the, uh, the situation, the compassion of Jesus where he reached out and he touched that leper and he healed him. But what's striking in that story is that only a moment later, after just healing that man, Jesus sternly rebukes him. 
So reading that passage, there you'll find at the end of that sheet, uh, from verse uh, 41, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, Jesus touched him and said to him, I will, I'm willing to, cl- to heal you, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to freely talk about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. The words used there in English to describe what Jesus uh, did are perhaps don't carry the full significance of what's going on there. Uh, the word that's used for that stern warning is a, is a really strong term. Uh, one Bible scholar puts it as, uh, says that it could refer to scarce controlled animal fury. This isn't just a stern warning. This is a violent warning. This isn't just a kind of a, a gentle comment, but a furious rebuke. Uh, and the term that's used for sending him away, again, is, a, is an extremely bold term. Why? At first, I think it seems uh, baffling how do compassion and fury go together. But this isn't the only time that this kind of thing that happens, this kind of thing happens in the ministry of Jesus. And the answer to this complexity seems to be that in the various cases, Jesus foresees what these people are about to do or he can see what they're thinking we know there are other examples where jesus can discern what's in the pharisees hearts uh, and and he becomes angry at uh, at their response toward him so then he knows that they're out to trap him or uh, he knows that they're, they're hard-hearted you see jesus gives this man three commands don't tell anyone Go show yourself to a priest and go offer the sacrifices required by the law. The man goes out and deliberately disobeys the first one and there's no evidence that he went and completed the other two either. This man is willing to receive the healing ministry of Jesus but he's unwilling to submit to his authority as Lord and God. This brief encounter with the leper demonstrates, I think, something crucial that we mustn't lose sight of when we're thinking about the emotions of Jesus. That is, we mustn't portray Jesus as a man of cheap sentimentality. We mustn't do that because that's not the picture that the New Testament presents us with. Yes, Jesus is a man of extraordinary compassion. The greatest exemplar of compassion who has ever walked on this earth. He's a man of extraordinary compassion who 
because of his compassion, faced the sheer terror of being forsaken by his heavenly Father. But Jesus was also a man who could be filled with white-hot rage when he saw the temple being turned from a house of prayer into a den of thieves. And he could fashion a whip and turn the tables over and drive people out of the temple. He could be furious at the hard-heartedness of those who were willing to accept his miracles but not bow to his authority. And he could rebuke the hard-heartedness of those who refused to acknowledge him as Messiah and King. Yes, Jesus is tender-hearted and gentle to those who come to him in need. Come to me, Jesus says, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yes, he's tender-hearted, but he's also our Lord and God, and he demands our allegiance. Does Jesus feel human emotion? Yes. He can sympathize with us in our deepest need. But in some ways, his emotions, as we've seen, show not simply that he's human, but they show us that he is God, the God of all compassion and the Father of comfort. He's not just human, but he's God. And he's a God who demands our allegiance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge uh, that emotions and feelings are a wonderful gift from you. They're one of the ways that we reflect you and image you. But we also want to confess that often our emotions are mixed up and confused. Uh, Our feelings are disordered. They're disordered by the sin that lives within us. So that often we respond with anger when we should respond with kindness or we respond with kindness when we should be horrified and appalled and should seek for justice. Our emotions and our feelings, Lord, lead us astray. They lead us to love things more than you or they lead us to make decisions that are contrary to your plan and purpose for us and for your world. Lord, forgive us for that through Jesus. But thank you that where we are distorted and corrupted, you have made known to us the path of perfect emotions and perfect feelings. You've shown us in Jesus the unparalleled goodness of reflecting your divine emotions in our humanity. Lord Jesus, thank you for doing what we couldn't and for putting right what we could not. But Father, reordering and renewing and recalibrating our emotions is so far beyond us and so far beyond our power. So often we're slaves to them rather than they, our servants. So not only forgive us, we pray, but free us and transform us. And may our old emotions and feelings, led by our sinful nature, be crucified with Jesus. And may we be raised up by your power through the Holy Spirit to be like him. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.